Our sermon today is from Psalm 127. Once again, let's read this passage now and please remain standing for the reading of God's word. A song of ascent of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of anxious toil. For in this manner, he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, sons are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the sons of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when he speaks with enemies in the gate. You can take your seats. I promise this will be our last sermon on the psalm. We will focus in on the last two verses today and finish with what has become a five-part series. Uh, These last two verses are pretty well known and somewhat controversial. They have spawned whole movements, such as the quiverful movement. Solomon's use of the quiver has been used to justify both limiting and expanding families. And regardless where either position lands, I don't see them using the quiver idea In the same way that Solomon does, he has a very specific application in mind. So what is this specific application? To get to this, I think it would be helpful to go over the whole structure of the psalm one last time. We will see that it narrows all the way down until it reaches quite a fine point. And that point, that one application, is what we will be mainly considering today. So Solomon starts off with the big principle of Yahweh building and guarding, and with that, the vanity of men doing either without him. He applies these principles to the building of houses and watching of cities. Then he narrows the application further to the way men build. There are those who have anxious toil and those who work hard and rest easy in the providence of God. Then Solomon narrows his focus even further to a specific aspect of our toil, that is, having children. They are a reward and a heritage that continues after you are gone. Finally, he applies this principle in an even narrower way to the city gate, where he gives a specific use for sons specifically. Having many sons with you in the gate is a display of force that will help you contend with your enemies. That is the fine point that this psalm comes down to. Having many sons in the gate. So what is the gate that Solomon is referring to here? Many of you will know that in ancient times, the gate, which would have been at the edge of the city, somewhere within the walls, obviously, was a place for judicial assemblies kind of like our modern-day courts. It was a place where justice would be worked out and judgments would be administered. But it was also more than that. It was a place where men, particularly elders, would come to discuss other important matters as well. But since it was a place that administered justice, it was a particularly important place to God. The gate was so important to God that he would judge Israel for what took place there. This is what Amos said about the gate in his day. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So there were wicked men in the gate in Amos' day, and because of that, 
God was going to judge the whole nation. He said a few verses later that the people of God ought to hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So the gate was an important place to God, just as the courts are in our day. And because of this, all men should be concerned about what takes place in our courts. Collectively, we ought to take responsibility for what happens in our courts because we will be judged collectively. Now, why was it a blessing for an individual to have many sons when he went to the gate? In answering this question, you will see why it is so important that we work from the correct translation. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the sons of one's youth. You wanted sons in the gate, not daughters. Why? Because as we said last week, arrow-like sons are a force to be reckoned with. They bring a certain presence with you. And in a place where justice might or might not be given, displaying a bit of force might help you. This is where the sword given to the civil magistrate by God could be used to end your life or take your property unjustly. We all know that the civil magistrates are often poor deacons and do not recognize their Lord. As our text says, there are true enemies in this gate. You might have to speak with them there. You might have to contend with them. Evil magistrates do not care what God would have them do. But if they know that they could be in for a tough time after they treat you poorly, having strong sons with you might sway them. It is an unfortunate reality of a fallen world, but displays of this kind of power are necessary. We have to be wise to this reality and act accordingly. Having a bunch of strapping young men behind you might mean that you get heard. It might mean that you get justice. This is why widows and orphans were so vulnerable in ancient societies. They had no natural power, no recourse if they were to be abused. This is why God said to Israel in the first chapter of Isaiah, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Why plead the cause of the fatherless and widow in particular? Because they had no men to protect them. This was the sad reality of many people. They were vulnerable to the oppression of unjust judges. So God called men to open their eyes to this need and to come alongside the vulnerable take up their case, learn to do good and seek justice on their behalf to, in a sense, be an arrow in a widow's quiver. Widows and orphans are the weakest of those who will stand in the gate. On the opposite end of the power scale is a man with 12 muscle-bound, wise and undaunted sons beside him. He will not be ashamed when he speaks with enemies in the gate. This gets to why Solomon compares sons to arrows in the hand of a warrior. These are adult, mature sons, capable of being useful weapons for a warrior. 
A crybaby four-year-old boy is no use to a man in the gate. In fact, they are likely to hinder him there. This being the case, if we understand Solomon's application correctly, none of my boys are arrows yet. They are potential arrows. Sons are not born arrows, and they do not become them automatically. They become them through consistent Christian nurture over time, and it takes a lot of time. When Solomon says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the sons of one's youth, he is implying here that when these sons are taken to the gate, they are grown men. The father is no longer in his youth. He had them in his youth. He may even be grey up top. He is older in age, bringing his youthful sons with him. Solomon spoke of this youthful strength in his book of Proverbs. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray hair, Proverbs twenty twenty nine. So after having these sons in his youth, they have grown to be valuable arrows in his hand. Though he may be older and diminishing in strength, he can be compared to a warrior since he is armed with the youthful strength of his sons. They are a strength multiplier. Now the word warrior is important here. What does a warrior do? He fights. A warrior is not your average man. He is a fighting specialist. And what does a warrior do with an arrow in his hand? He puts it in his bow, he calmly draws it back, and releases it into the chest of his enemy. The plain application of this psalm is that sons were made for righteous violence, or at least they were made to carry with them the threat of potential righteous violence. I'm speaking about the good kind of violence here, a force for good. The threat of righteous violence is known to all those who see these arrows in the gate. Arrows aren't cute. They aren't designed to cuddle. They are made to split open the skulls of orcs. They are designed to fly through the air between you and your enemy and kill them efficiently. The result of a well-used arrow is blood and guts all over the ground an evil man writhing in pain as he lays there dying. I just wanted to make sure that this image was landing for you. But we are Christians, Jared. We do not glorify violence. Are you glorifying violence now? Yes, I am, faithful Christian lady who hasn't been taught well. (laughs) A more accurate way of putting it is that God is glorifying violence through Solomon. An arrow in the hands of a warrior is a glorious thing. Solomon knows that men want to be warrior-like. We should be compelled to obedience by what this image invokes. Consider this. In a psalm about Yahweh building and protecting, the one application that he chose to make the whole thing land with was the earthly power that a man's sons will give him in the gate a power that can do damage to his enemies through righteous violence. There is a particular glory in this. All that God does is glorious. 
But Solomon thought that this one particular thing needed to be highlighted here. Of all the applications that he could have gone with, and there are many if you think about all that God builds, this was the one that he made. Therefore, it is important. Remember, Israel would sing about this application over and over again as they made their ascent to the temple. This point lands even harder when you consider the limited number of psalms of ascent that Israel were given to sing. God gave them 15. Israel repeatedly sung these psalms on their way up to the temple, forming and shaping their worldview, reminding them over and over again what life was about, where true blessing lies, what is truly praiseworthy, what a man should aim for, what is truly a gift of God. So there is something really profound and important about this application. God clearly wants more arrows from Israel. Yahweh's work of building and protecting is closely connected to what happens in the gate through sons. So a father should know that God will bless him if he has many sons of his own. This brings us to the idea of having a quiver full of arrows. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them? Now, some people have drawn some silly things from this text. God does not teach us here that every man has a quiver with a certain capacity. That is not the point. The quiver is merely where the arrows go. It is the place where a man holds his weapons. The number of arrows is the thing of significance. More arrows means more power. Like I said, it's a force multiplier. Nothing is said in this text about the limitation of a man's quiver size. That is something that's imported into it. It is important to note that in some sense, it is the man who fills his quiver. Let's read it again and notice who is filling the quiver. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. In the previous verse, we saw that children are a reward from God. They are his gift to us. And at the same time, a man fills his quiver by choice. He is blessed because of his decision to fill his quiver. The blessing in view here is not that a quiver has finally reached its capacity, as though we could know what its limit is. A man is blessed when he intentionally fills his quiver with what God would give him. This blessing, like every other blessing that God holds out to us in Scripture, is supposed to drive a godly man to seek that blessing. That blessing is given through the willingness and openness to add to his quiver. And this is because, as I've already said, there is power in numbers. With more arrows, you are more equipped for battle. If one army, consider this, if one army with a single arrow in each of their quiver came up against an army of an equivalent size that had ten arrows in each of their quivers, the second army would have a huge advantage. What you really want when you go into battle is a quiver like the one that Legolas had. You know, Legolas from The Lord of the Rings. As you watched that movie, as we did on Friday, which watched The Two Towers, you see he has a quiver of infinite arrows. <laughs> a quiver like Jesus' basket of bread and fish. 
they just keep coming as he draws from it. In the end, you see a big pile of orcs and you wonder where all the arrows came from. Coming back to Solomon's point, a man is blessed who fills his quiver because he goes to stand in the gate prepared. Over decades of training and nurturing his sons through hard toil, he is now a well-armed man. Nobody is messing with this guy and his family. The presence of his arrows earns him a kind of respect that he would not have otherwise. The truth is, he probably won't even need to let an arrow fly. He's going open carry with his full quiver. Just having his weapons visible should be enough to deter his enemies. It changes the vibe at the gate. So much so that what he says will be heard differently. This is what our text says. He will not be ashamed when he speaks with his enemy in the gate. This gives us an understanding of how authority flows to a man in the real world. Certain natural things add to your potency and even your spiritual effectiveness. Real strength matters. Real world accomplishments matter. A man with a large godly family carries a certain kind of weight with him. I don't know about you, but the prospect of this blessing is very attractive to me. No one has to convince me that a man who has it is truly blessed. I want it. But do you think the typical modern Christian would value this blessing or even know that they should? I mean, this blessing as Solomon presents it, arrows in the hand of a warrior kind of blessing. Wouldn't most think that it is impious for a man to desire weapons, training their sons in such a way that they would be weapons that are a threat to power? That is so earthly. Christians don't understand these blessings because we have lost touch with the real world. We have been formed by Hillsong and not by Psalms like this one. We have been trained each Sunday that our primary Christian duty is to emote heavenward. And the rest of our time should be devoted to pious navel-gazing and loathing our depravity. As a result, we don't look out at what is going on in the gate. And we are not preparing for the time we might need to stand there. We have no need for arrows, so we don't fill our quiver with them. And if we do, we file away the sharp end and put on one of those sticker things you can lick and stick to a window. Our false conception of Christianity has made us impotent suckers. And if any Christian dares to flex his false form of power, he rightly becomes a laughingstock in this culture. We learn from the psalm where true power comes from. The church has no real-world enemies anymore. We make it our duty to ignore unjust powers from the safe distance of our churches. We certainly don't believe that our 2.2 arrows were given to us by God for confronting the powers of the world. It is being taught everywhere that Christ's kingdom is not of this world, so Christian kids should have no place in the civil sphere. We certainly wouldn't want the world to think that our families are a threat to their power. Because of all of this, we are out the gate. We have left it entirely. 
The only acceptable time to enter the gate might be when we are called to be martyred there in silence. As a result, the pagans have all the power and have been given free reign over the powerless. But because we are in a post-Christian culture, widows and orphans are still somewhat looked after. We haven't abandoned them entirely yet. In recent years, the abandonment has begun, though. We gladly forfeited the care of the elderly through euthanasia. On top of this, we've made a new orphan class through abortion and cryogenic freezing. It is always the weak who suffer when wicked men or women stand in the gate. The status quo should not be acceptable to any Christian. So what must we do about it? How do we apply all of this to ourselves today? Like I said, these verses already have a narrow application. So before we spread the truth out into the corners, let me sum up some of the key applications that are there on the surface for us. First, Solomon teaches us that a man that desires the blessing of God will fill his quiver with arrows. There is an earthly benefit to this, and seeking this earthly benefit is a spiritual good that pleases our Lord. We must act on this and have more babies. This is the plain application to our day. The second application is closely related. Solomon teaches us that the sons of our youth must mature into something useful and effective in the public sphere. This implies a distinct form of Christian discipleship. Our sons must be trained to be tough. All our children must be trained in a way that they are comfortable dealing with the harsh realities of this world. They must be truly in the world, but not of it. That means Christian education is a must. Secular education is a definite no. Again, they are to be arrows in your quiver, not spaghetti noodles or arrows for the enemy. The third surface application, which is closely related to the last, like the other one was, Solomon teaches us that it is good for men to have the capacity for violence. We need to believe that. The threat of violence can be used to bring about peace and ensure justice in the gate, particularly for your family. This is why the American founders recognized the right to bear arms. There is a time when men must come to blows, and when it comes, the Christian should want to win. So first, we need to understand the importance of this ourselves and then teach it to our kids, to both our sons and our daughters. Tell your sons that they, under normal circumstances, are to be the administers of righteous violence, not the woman. Wives shouldn't faint when these ideas are being taught and when a father is training his son to be tough. The plain teaching of this text is that a wise father will prepare his sons to fight. We made another application related to this from other parts of the Bible. Our sons, our arrows, can and must understand their duty to defend those who have no men to support them. These are the widows and orphans amongst us today. These are the babies in the womb. These are the babies in the freezer. There are also women who find themselves alone 
and unprotected in tough situations, and it calls a man calls for a man to defend them. So going beyond what is on the surface of the text now, I think it would be good for us to consider further how arrows are made. Before we do this, though, I want you to know that I understand I am wading into some dangerous territory here. Like I said, I do not have arrows yet. My sons are not mature adults, so it is yet to be seen if I have been taught by the Lord how to train sons that will be useful in the public sphere. That means you have to closely watch the authority of my claims. I have a scriptural understanding that I've only begun to apply, so test what I say. And I will endeavor, as always, to appeal to an authority outside of myself. So the first principle I want us to consider is the balance of training. There are many things that need to be taught to both our sons and our daughters. And part of getting discipleship right is to be proportionate to ensure you don't have a skewed emphasis on some aspects of the faith. For example, you could take what I've taught today from two verses of one psalm and put too much emphasis on training your sons to fight. This is a small slither of the teaching that must be set within the full counsel of God. Paul addresses the value of bodily training in his letter to Timothy. He said, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. So Paul speaks here to something of what our emphasis should be. Godliness is of value in this life and in the life to come. When we die, all of our fighting skill will go with us. But strength and knowing what to do with your strength is important for this life. God gave it to men to use for his glory. So a wise father will teach the full counsel of God. And he will try to strike a balance that accords with the full counsel of God. He will rightly order the home and prioritize certain aspects of his children's discipleship at different times. This is because the most effective arrow is not one that can merely engage in combat. The analogy of the psalm breaks down at a point because an arrow is meant for one thing, nailing a target. A son is meant for many things. The kind of son you want standing with you at the gate is one who has the composure of a man resting in the sovereignty of God. You want a son that does not lose his cool easily. He is not swayed by his emotions. He knows right from wrong. He knows when to hold back. He knows even how he is supposed to love his enemies. An arrow-like son has true balance And that balance will not be imparted if he is only trained to be a weapon. We do not want our sons to become orcs. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Remember, this psalm is giving us 
one narrow application, and it is great to know that our sons are supposed to be arrows and are useful in the gate, but sons must be more than arrows. And their usefulness in the gate will be diminished if they are not a balanced individual. But you might ask, how do we know what the right balance is? This is definitely a very hard question to answer because true balance comes when we understand how to apply all of Christ to all of life. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so we need to seek wisdom out in him. Every father must be fully trained in his word so that by testing he may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and the perfect way of parenting. There is no perfect way of parenting, obviously. In a sinful, fallen world, it is always a messy job. And there is no easy answer to this question about balance either, because it requires a lifetime of wisdom. We will continually grow in wisdom and parenting. The only thing that God has made easy for us is showing us where the source of wisdom is. The second parenting principle I want us to consider and this is our last application, is the principle of imitation. Again, this is something we have considered in our post-millennial parenting studies. If a father wants his son to become an arrow, in a sense, he must first become an arrow. You cannot impart what you do not have. And all children learn mainly by imitation. A son will imitate his father. This is a principle taught throughout scripture and woven into the fabric of the world. A few examples from scripture are, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Your heavenly father. We are told to be imitators of God the father as beloved children. The son of God imitated his father perfectly, saying, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. This is one of those fractal truths that operates on many levels. That being the case, we need to be aware of it, meditate on it regularly, and live in light of it. You have to be strong so that your sons can be strong. You have to be composed so that your sons can be composed. You have to gain wisdom so that your sons can gain wisdom. When you have it, you can say to your sons, Hear, O son, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, and do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Proverbs 4, 1 through 5. Now there is much more that could be said about this. There could be more sermons, but we're going to have to continue applying this at lunchtime. This is as much as my preparation allowed me to get. So let's pray now that God would help us to apply these truths to our lives. Let's pray. Father, as we finish this time in the psalm, five weeks of sermons, 
Lord, we want to thank you for it. We want to thank you for the plain meaning that we are able to draw out from it. And Lord, it holds out an excellent vision for us. It gives us direction. We know what to do. Lord, though it is hard, help us to do it. Help us not to despise your calling for us. Help us to take up work willingly and help us to rest in your providence and your kindness um, as we do this hard work. Lord, we thank you for our families. We thank you for our sons. May you help us as fathers to, to follow this high calling that you've given us, to train up our sons to be arrows. Lord, I pray for our sons that they would hear this word now and that they would know something of what they're called to be and that they would rely on you to be it. Lord, we thank you for them. We pray also for the rest of the sons that are coming out of the churches of this nation. We pray that you would teach them masculinity, that you would teach them all that they need to be in this culture. We suffer for lack of men in the gate. So Lord, we pray that you would cause repentance in this area. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.